YOLO! Hey there. Be sure to stay tuned in till the end of the interview. I'm at the end. We'll actually give you a preview of one of our coaching calls and you'll be able to hear some of the financials of the podcast and actually hear what our future plan is here. So I hope you enjoy this episode and hope you stick around till the end of the interview. YOLO! When this all started, I never knew I was creating a business. I was just freelancing, I was having fun. I was young, I'm in college. I was kind of oblivious to the world or whatever. So I just feel like this was just my hobby. I think as a business, you don't need everything to look perfect, work perfect. And I think people have this sort of mindset of just like overnight, it needs to be a success. I think that's a huge takeaway. So that's one thing I would say, look at it as a Whatever it is, it's got to be a word and you got to own it. And before we left for work every day, we had post-it notes on our door. And every day they were just different names. This is Dalib Jaggi from Irvine. I'm 29 years old and I'm head of business over at Vincent. And what's Vincent? Vincent is a UI, UX and software engineering company with 450 employees. And really like the sort of motto is that Mondays don't suck and we live with no fear for a better tomorrow. Okay. And you said you're in Irvine, California? Yeah, Irvine, California. Okay. Because it's just like international audience. So I always try to make sure that everyone's not left behind. You're just outside Los Angeles, basically, right? Yeah, pretty much outside Los Angeles. Irvine's pretty much, if you want to think about it, it's between LA and San Diego, right in the middle. Okay, nice. And were you like born and raised there? How did you end up in Irvine? So actually, I was born in Houston, lived there for about a year. Folks came over to California. But from what I understand, like, Houston's never been the same since I left. <laughs> it's better off. <laughs> yeah, it's better off without me. Gotcha. And so Vincent is spelled V-I-N-C-I-T, just so everyone um, kind of understands. And can you talk a little bit more about what Vincent is? Yeah, well, basically we're a software engineering company, hands down a software engineering company. We have 450 employees. We've been awarded best place to work, but we're industry agnostic. There's multiple studios with such a large community of engineers. We pretty much have about like eight, nine different studios with about 50 employees. And, you know, companies come to us because they need to push the envelope a little bit further to develop their innovative products. Now, this could be served in three different formats, web systems, mobile systems, and embedded systems. But pretty much anything tech-related, our guys, we want to get in the trenches, start writing code and testing and help provide those solutions. You say you're industry agnostic, but is there some type of application people come to you with mostly? Is I mean, are you making apps for iOS or Android or are you doing other types of things? We do both. I think in terms of a common theme, we would look at, there's just more requests. I think today people are asking more about like machine learning, artificial intelligence, and understanding how they can implement these different automated services and tools into their business practices. So that's like a common theme in terms of asks, but we do iOS, we do Android in terms of mobile applications. A big differentiator is we do a lot of embedded work. Like GE Healthcare has been a long-term client and we do a lot of their embedded software. And so when I say embedded, I talk about like firmware, the software that's like on the device itself that helps that device operate. And maybe it could have like a Bluetooth connectivity. So think about your Alexa device has some level of firmware built onto the hardware so it knows how to run, what to do, and et cetera. So we do a lot of that. And what is your position at Vincent again? So I'm head of business. I help them from anything from a business perspective to a diversifying product lines, finding new clients, and pushing the business further, especially since they just moved to the U.S. a couple of years ago. So we're pretty new on this side of the world, helping them grow in California. So where were they before? The company originated in Finland. 
and was a great success in Finland. Grew to 400 employees. They turned public a few years back. And then a couple of years ago, okay, so if you think about this, Finland only has about five and a half million people in the whole country. Whereas like in the Orange County, we have about like four million people. So the business model was working quite well. One of the biggest engineering shops in Finland, they won best place to work and recognize of all of Europe. So they're well known in that region. It was almost a disservice to the business model being only in a small market. So coming here really opens up a lot of opportunities and creates a bigger presence for U.S. companies. And so people listening right now, they might be wondering like, hey, Austin, why are you talking to the head of business here at Vincent? Usually I try to get either business founders or people that might have taken over a family business or people have grown into maybe like a CEO role or kind of run the whole business. So I think your story was a little different. And can you tell us why? Totally. Yeah. So I'm a software engineer by trade, turned into like a entrepreneur and founder a couple of years back in college. I've invented a couple of different companies, but my main company, which everything sort of like channeled through was Devise Interactive as an agency. Grew to about a team of 11, all software engineers, in-house staff, doing a lot of branding and software development projects for companies. But I actually sold the company to Vincent about six months ago. Right before at the turn of 2019, we finally closed our deal and I sold the company. So my staff has moved over, my all the contracts have moved over, and we're helping now Vincent grow just given that our values were really aligned up. So you grew your company for what I'm looking at is about five years to 11 people and you actually ended up selling it to Vincent. So it's always interesting because anyone who starts a business, eventually they want to sell it. Whether you think so or not, you're going to sell it or you're going to die, right? One or the other, I assume, or actually, you know, obviously can go out of business too. But it's always interesting to hear people's stories on maybe why they sold or their exit and how they grow in their business career. Because again, who knows, maybe you're at Vincent for the rest of your life, or maybe you end up starting your own another business at some point in time. But can you give us more of a reason why you started? You said you were aligned, but was it also going to be like, were you getting too stressed out being the owner and you just saw a different role here by going to Vincent and merging with them? Yeah, totally. And I think, well, first, let me touch on the point that you made about like, a lot of people don't know that they're going to sell their business. So like I was that. This came out of college and similar to the way that like, you buy your first car and you think that you're going to hold it on to forever. And it's like a prized possession. Like a business at the end of the day is a business is one thing I've learned and it's a separate entity. And I never thought that I would start my business. However, like five years later, building the business up, we were doing great. Like we never had an employee leave. Revenue was generating. But really the agency model for me, I was looking to do something a little bit different. I had sort of participated in founding a couple other inventions and those are going through their own exits as well. Done a couple of private equity deals, which was really fun. And so for me, I was just looking like, you know what? It's been five years. This opportunity is really coming. We've been asked to be purchased a couple of times, but this was a little bit different. And I was like, you know what? This would be a great way to shuffle up my pieces and push me into a different direction. One of the things is you got to be challenged creatively and you have to be challenged professionally. And if you're not, you're stagnant. And so when we hit, we hit the million mark and double digit employees. I was at this fork in the road and I was going, do I really just want to try to hit 2 million in revenue and double my employees? And to be honest, that business model and scalability didn't excite me. But the, some of the stuff that we had going on around me in terms of the inventions we made really excited me. So this is a way just to me kind of like take risks, be dangerous and try not to be stagnant. And, you know, I'm still young in my career where I'm 29. So this next decade, I feel like I can refactor my own skill set and we jump into something new. How big is Vincent again? 450 employees. Do you deal with just office out of California where you're located, really? 
Yeah, so this studio we have in Irvine is about 40 employees, and we just opened up a Santa Monica office with just one employee now. But you write in the way that you're suggesting, it's almost two different subsidiaries. So Finland does their work, we do our work. And so when we work with our clients, they're dealing directly with only our team members in the office. Right. For you personally, again, it's a way if you started your own business kind of coming out of college, that's all you knew was kind of what you did. And then going into a bigger company, again, I think when everyone starts, they don't necessarily think that they're going to sell. But maybe you saw this opportunity as a way to grow personally, too, by being in a bigger company and see how they structure things. So maybe when you start another company or do whatever, you have a more broad experience played, if you will. Well, it's an interesting point that you bring that up. So when we were building our agency and I mean, obviously we made a couple of mistakes, like a lot of questions in terms of like, what do, what terms should we agree to? What kind of engagement process, workflow, customer servicing, and we're straight out of college, right? So we didn't, we always had this theme saying we've never worked at an agency, which is a good thing, but also a bad thing. The bad thing, cause we're going to be coming out of this with a bunch of scars. We're going to make a couple of mistakes and it's, we could charge more, we could not charge more, et cetera. But those are scars that are going to make us and last with our professional careers make us who we are. But it's a good thing because we don't have a benchmark. We're not the old guys that say, oh, back in my day, this is how we used to do it. We can come up and just be like, hey, we're being innovative. This is what we feel is right. Let's give this a go. And so you're right though, going into Vincent, there is a kinesthetic learning adventure for me to understand, you know, like, oh, how are these guys running their business? And I'm a learner of life and I'm constantly watching and seeing how Vincent's growing their business and seeing, wow, that would have been a good thing to know, you know, when I was running my own. It's cool to see that myself in the rearview mirror. Are there any things that stand out now that you're at Vincent? You've been here not too long, but I guess over the last six or nine months or so that you've been there, is there some things that, again, you've learned now that you wish you knew when you had your own business? Yeah, I mean, the Vincent model is, we're a time and materials business model, and we really double down on software engineering and UI UX, and we do it really well. So at certain points of devise, we were getting hit up by, we were doing really good work and a lot of people want us to dabble into different digital related services. So that could be like marketing and social media. So I feel at certain points, we spread ourselves thin, kind of thinking of different product lines that we can potentially see revenue and bring more value to our customers. But looking back, I was like, you know what? Doubling down was really a good way because it brings clarity to our customers. It brings clarity to our employees. And we understand sort of what we're doing and what we're selling. So that was a big takeaway. And then in some cases, I feel that once you do a couple of projects and you're kind of like billing by time, you kind of get creative in the way that you package your offering when I talk about compensation. So a lot of times we were doing like fixed bids, like, you know, we'll develop this for X amount. And so following a time and materials business model, to me, felt a little bit more of a protected and safeguard. Although you're only subject to how many hours you can spend and then sell, right? So scalability becomes really hard. It was interesting to see like, if I wanted my business to be more than just 1.5 million in revenue and go into the 50 million revenue, well, the only way to do that was going to be to hire a couple hundred employees and just get the projects turning. And that's what we do at Vincent. We do it really well. Do you think you wanted to be Vincent? It would have just taken you maybe another 10 or 15 years to hopefully, maybe you still wouldn't even be up to 450 employees, but that's what it would take to get to where you are now with Vincent? We were a small studio. So I think it's two different things. I don't think I ever had the desire and, and my team knew this well, where we were never saying that we're just going to hire and just have like 50 employees and just keep scaling. Kept it intimate, kept the relationships small and everyone knew what was kind of going on in the office. So I never had that desire. But if I wanted to scale the business to that size, that's what it would take. Do you remember when you started your small business? It was no small feat. It took a lot of late nights, early mornings, and the occasional all-nighter. Bottom line, 
You've been insanely busy ever since. So why not make things a little bit easier? Well, our friends at FreshBooks have the solution. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners. It's simple, intuitive, and keeps you more organized than a dusty shoebox filled with crumbled receipts. Create and send professional looking invoices in 30 seconds, and then get them paid two times faster with automated online payments. File expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. And the best part, FreshBooks grows alongside your business. So you'll always have the tools you need when you need them without ever having to learn the ins and outs of accounting. So join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks. Try it free for 30 days. No catch and no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com forward slash MI and enter millionaire interviews and the how did you hear about us section to get started. That's freshbooks.com forward slash MI. And for more information about FreshBooks, you can go check out episode 141 where I interviewed the founder, Mike McDermott. Hiring the right people is one of the best ways to help grow your business, but it shouldn't take time away from your other priorities. With LinkedIn Jobs, it doesn't have to. One of the features that I find most valuable on LinkedIn Jobs is being able to target someone in your geographic area. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the right hard and soft skills you're looking for, so you can hire the right person fast. Things like collaboration, creativity, adaptability. LinkedIn looks beyond the work skills and puts your job post in front of qualified candidates who match your business requirements perfectly. That's how LinkedIn makes sure your job post is seen by the people you want to hire. People with the skills, qualifications, and other interests that will help your business grow. It's no wonder a person is hired every 8 seconds with LinkedIn. And why companies rated LinkedIn Jobs the number one hiring platform for delivering quality hires. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash millionaire. Again, that's linkedin.com slash millionaire to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So normally, like I said, I try to go get a broad view. And I think we have generically of like where you are at today and kind of what you're doing. Do you want to jump back to the beginning and maybe we can quickly go through your timeline and things that you can teach the other people who are listening? Maybe there's other people who want to provide like a service kind of like your company does. And they're like, I don't know how to get started. Maybe they're out of college and maybe we can, again, just learn some things from your story. So do you want to reel it back to how you got started and tell us how much money you had. And if you're coming out of college, I guess you're about 22, 23 years old. Exactly. But it did start earlier than that, actually. And so to take us back, like on how this all started, I started like dabbling into gaming when I was like 15. And then that was like my entry point into the internet. What games? I only played Counter-Strike. And that's the only game I still play. I never moved to anything else. Mm -hmm. But I sort of entered like that gaming culture. And that was pretty much my life when I was 15. But then I got introduced to web development. And that's where it started. So I started doing websites for like Counter-Strike teams. And it was just something that I was curious about. But then eventually when I was like, you know, 17, 18, someone asked me to build their website. And I would be like, yeah, I could do this. I'll charge you $100. That was a lot to me, you know, when I was 17. So that kind of like started at that age. And the requests kept coming in. And a lot of times people were asking like, can you build this sort of software that I want to build on like a website, but has like an application purpose. And I didn't know how to do that. And I remember my first one, I'm like, no, I mean, yes, I can do it. In the back of my head, I'm going, I really don't know how to do this. 
It's going to cost you 2500 It was like the biggest deal I ever closed. And that's how it got started. So in college, I've never really had a real job. I did when I was 17, 18, but quickly quit that when I was like 18 years old. And web development and this sort of freelancing life is sort of what provided me the income. I was living at my parents' house. Eventually, I was like, you know what? I want to start hiring part-time employees because I have more work than my own two hands. So I actually, to get me started into this mindset, this is before Devise was really born, I bartered services with this sort of manufacturing house, large manufacturing house. And I said, look, I will give you free web development services and I'll pay you $200 a month. And I want that front office that you guys have that you, you don't use. The landlord was super nice. He gave it to me and I would leave from my parents' house to drive to work. Keep in mind, I'm like 20, 21 or whatever to sit in this office by myself. I set it up like there was like going to be employees, there's empty desk, empty chairs. It was organized. It kind of looked like a little mini agency, if you will. But this got me into my mindset. I was like, I'm going to start hiring people. But it took me six to eight months to hire my first part-time employee. And eventually that was just someone I met at Cal State Fullerton who would come in the evenings and we would like hack on a couple projects and start grinding. So that was sort of my entry point. And one second, if you don't mind, what year was that that you did that? So that must have been about like 22, 23. I would say I hired the first employee. 22 is sort of when I had like my first office. Okay. So we talking into 2012 or so? I don't know the exact dates, but somewhere around there. Yeah. All right. I just try to keep the timeline. Well, were you in college or not? Because I have your LinkedIn up here so I can kind of get a better idea. So I was in college. Yeah. All right. So yeah, we're about 2010 then is really when you made your first hire. So I don't want to brush over because again, it seems like you have revenue coming in. You're smart to barter for that space. But to getting clients, it sounds like you just had them coming in the door after you did the first thing. Were you doing anything proactively to try to get clients? Okay, that's actually a two-fold question. So there wasn't anything proactive that I was doing initially. So people were like working with me, were first started coming in, and that was great. But then I started getting involved with different groups, like this group called here the Ad Federation. And there's like a chapter here in Orange County, and they have a smaller chapter called Ad to OC. So the Ad Federation is basically all the ad agencies, like they're on the board, they help organize different events. And the Ad to OC is for people like younger, like in college, setting up networking events. So I was on the board for that. So I started putting on like different community events and organizing these things. And that's how like a community started to get born, you know? And then I was involved with a couple other different chapters here in Orange County about networking and entrepreneurship. That's a lot of ways what I would attest the deal flow that came from, not to mention that. I wasn't focused on making a high profit margin. I was focused on just doing good work and making sure the clients were happy. So that just led like one client would lead into four referrals over a year. And that was great. So those are the two ways that I think is how I grew the business. And I guess first year, can you give us an idea of how much you think you made in revenue? I don't know if you remember off the top of your head. It's kind of weird because I can't really blend like the first year when that started, but I know, honestly, I think it was like 40 or 50,000. It wasn't much. Okay. That's still not bad, especially if you're not really being super proactive about it and you're making your first hire. So there had to be some confidence that this was going to keep going, though. It was pretty unreal. I remember when we, I was like, all right, I'm doing my own taxes. I hired my first accountant and we ringed in like 40 or 50,000. That was pretty impressive. It was just me. There was no employees or anything like that. So definitely a milestone. And so after that, did you get some success? Do you just feel like, hey, I want to keep growing? I think this can be a real business versus at first, it seems you were just kind of good at coding or putting together websites. And so you just did it as a job. I just did it. It was fun. And each client was bettering my talent and my skill. And that was the theme at Devise was we walk in every day to just better ourselves and better our skill. Away from that, 
I really wasn't focused on the money, but I think as entrepreneurs, we have a sort of chase. And so I was heavy involved in business development. I wasn't one of those developers that just wants to sit at my computer. I enjoyed talking to people. I enjoyed selling. I enjoyed closing a deal. And seeing those numbers grow was exciting thing for me to see like how the business was growing. That was just something that I just enjoyed. And so I was always hitting the ground running and trying to find more deals and grow the business. And so you grew it up till 2014 is what I'm looking at is kind of when Devise started. So was the first few years you were just kind of doing as a solopreneur slash maybe had one or two hires helping you do it? Yeah. So the company used to be called something else before called FX Online. That was like my Counter-Strike name because that's where this all like spun from. I had a couple part-time employees and then I converted one guy to full-time. And then I made Devise was sort of born when through that gaming days, I sort of met this guy on IRC Online. His name's Randy and he was my creative director. So all the design work was actually done by him in Washington State. So 2014 is when I convinced him to move from Washington State to Orange County to join Devise. But knowing that he was moving and we had this really creative talent coming and joining the team, we couldn't be FX online anymore. The name wasn't nice. The branding wasn't nice. People don't know how to spell it. So that's when Devise was born and we unreleased this brand, which was a digital studio that fuses branding and technology. Who came up with the name? (laughs) It was, you just took me back to that time, man. It took us a year to figure out the name. And it was like me and Randy were roommates. We were going through so much. It just drives you crazy the different names to come up with. And we knew because FX was so hard to spell that we want to own a word. And that was really big takeaway. Like whatever it is, it's got to be a word and you got to own it and people would know how to spell it. Before we left for work every day, we had post-it notes on our door and every day they were just different names. So we would see them just kind of like as we're leaving and keeping the back of our mind. So we both came up with it, but it wasn't like we came up the word and was like, oh, that's it. It took us time to settle in and be like, ah, devise is who we are. So, And when your buddy moved down to California to join you, how much do you think you were making a revenue around that point in time? At that point, it was about 150, 180, I would say, was yearly revenue. Okay. And again, we started off at like, let's just say 50. So over a couple of years, you grew it up to almost 200, if you will. It seems like when that guy finally moved down. Yeah. And that's when I consider the first year. So I'm like, all right, Devise was born. We have one, basically him and another individual. So we had two full-time employees. I think that's what happens with a lot of businesses. And for example, even this podcast, I started interviewing probably like six months before I launched, but I don't really count it till I actually launched it. Even though, again, you're putting in time to get to where you are. I think that's the way a lot of business owners think. Because at first, you're kind of probably just playing around, seeing if this is really going to happen, if this is what you're really going to do. But then you get to a point where you're like, hey, we need to go all in and actually do this or stop, right? Yeah, 100%. I think there's a lot of pre-work that gets done and then the business is born. It's never as linear as we may see like, oh, Instagram was born overnight and that's how Instagram knew exactly what to do. There's a lot of like iteration that happens beforehand. And then that big launch is kind of like, okay, now we know who we are and this is who we're coming out with. This is what we're coming out with. Yeah. I think a lot of people listen, kind of understand. I think they learn from even your story and others that we've had on it. You really have to put in a shit ton of time to be successful. A lot of people kind of forget that. I think who don't listen to podcasts or brainstorm about having a business. It's not like it happens the next day. These little things like setting up an LLC or setting up your bookkeeping or trying to figure out what's going to be your differentiator in business. Cause you got to do some studying to kind of figure that out. And for instance, coming up like a name, like you did it takes time. It all takes time. But I know like the differentiator for me too was when this all started, I never knew I was creating a business. I was just freelancing. I was having fun. I was young. I'm in college. I was kind of oblivious to the world or whatever. So 
I just feel like this was just my hobby, you know, and it was fun. But when Devise was born, there was like an intention. This is the business. We're going to grow this. We have a culture that we want to produce. This is how we're going to treat our employees. So the intention was different. And for me, like kind of like where I drew the line. So when you say you're sort of making like 150 to 200,000 the first year of Devise, how much is that is actual profit for a company like yours? At that time, our EBITDA lines are healthy at like 15, 20%. Like that would be phenomenal EBITDA lines for an agency. What do you call it? EBITDA lines? Yeah, just like, you know, everything kind of like before taxes and stuff, like GP. Gross profit. But for example, at that time, I remember like I was paying myself very minimal. So everything we made, we put back into the business, which may be like 15, 20%. I would imagine that we were making like 20, 30,000 out of 200. And as far as what you're doing with the revenue and making sure that everything's going on track, I mean, did you make projections even for that first year? How did you feel after having your first year of device there? I felt like we were growing because I wasn't really focused on putting money into my pocket. I stayed at a 50K salary pretty much the entire way through device. So I never had like a high salary. I was putting all dollars back into the company, any profits we were making investments. That's sort of the way that I ran the business. When we go back to that first year, I always felt okay with it because the inquiries was always coming in in terms of new interest. So I was never really worried about making payroll three months from now. Plus with two employees like and what we were doing, it wasn't hard to maintain. But when we started getting to like six, seven employees, that was when we were going, all right, we're going to hire another one. We have to make this decision very carefully. You know, is this something we want to take on? Because then, you know, you hit the volatility of like, you have bad months, you have good months. And Sometimes the business has got to float for two months until those paychecks start coming in. And now I kind of remember as far as we're talking about like your profit margin, the majority of it actually just your labor cost. Yeah. So pretty much in our model, it's pretty much all labor. Yeah. That's what I figured. Yeah. One thing that was good to know in the beginning, that idea of bartering rent or office space stayed with me for a couple of years. So the first two years of Devise, my buddy runs a video agency. So I would give him some free web services and pay him a couple hundred bucks. And so we had very cheap rent in his office. We had like a studio, we had a conference room, we had all this extra stuff that he already built out because his firm was pretty large. So that really helped me and helped to grow the business during those days. To me, from your story so far, I think that's one of the biggest takeaways for anyone who wants to get started. Again, because you're a younger guy, we're trying to learn what you do in those early years and being able to barter space. Like you think you don't have the money for rent. Why not try something like that you're doing? When you barter it too, it's going to save you money on taxes because you're not paying money for money, basically for services. So I think that was really smart. Is there anything else like early on that you can take away that you're like, hey, I wish I did or I did correctly that you think other business owners should know about? Yeah, so... I think being scrappy is super important. So like another thing that we would do is, well, I was a developer. So a lot of times I was like hiring juniors from college and then training them and then making them into seniors. And that was very much part of the business model. So within this, one of the things that we implement, like, all right, if we're hiring juniors and their skill sets can change so often, we knew that we should give them raises often as well. So we would pretty much give raises and evaluations every six months. But that way, our employees, they were incentivized, they were motivated, they were intrigued, they were challenged creatively and professionally. And so it was smart because we were saving money on payroll costs up front and then getting them to like grow pretty quick. I think just being scrappy and being strategic in the way that you need all these different tools to run a business and knowing that in the beginning stages that you just may have to do things a little bit differently and try to find those creative ways. So this whole time, were you living with your parents? So... 
I was in college, and then when Randy came from Washington, me and him have got a place together, and so that's when, like, you know, I was like, ah, oh, personal overhead now. <laughs> was that like your co-founder, the guy you invited down? Did you make him like a co-founder? Yeah, so he did become a partner because he came from Washington, and this was already being built. He just had a vesting period, but he was pretty much my co-founder. Devise would not have been possible without Randy, and he was a major player in Devise. So what was the work life with Randy if y'all are going to work and then living together? And then I imagine playing Counter-Strike together 24-7, right? <laughs> there was no more Counter-Strike during those times, but it was actually perfect. So you would think, you know, if you have a co-founder, a partner, anyone, and you're working with them and you're living with them, you're like, you'd be sick of that person. But actually, it wasn't like that at all. Me and Randy are like polar opposites when it comes to our personal life or polar opposites when it comes to the business mindset, even like creative skill set. And because of that, we were sort of like a yin-yang relationship and it worked really well. In fact, it's been six years now and we're still roommates to this day and we're homies and we hang out and it just really worked really well. And I, people get jealous of how good of a roommate we are because I hear some horror stories, but I just tell everyone you have to find a Randy and you'll be good. <laughs> nice. So does Randy work at Vincent now too? So Vincent's a creative guy where Vincent really focused on software engineering. So he started his own brand consultancy. And that was one of the things along the journey. I'm sorry, I you said Randy was the guy who moved down for you, but I'm talking about Vincent, the company. Am I missing something else? Randy doesn't work for Vincent. He started his own brand consultancy, yeah. Okay, cool. But along the journey, the, one of the challenging things that we actually had later on was we were heavy on brand and we were heavy on tech. And those are just on two opposite sides of the spectrum, which was really good because we could diversify our product line. But really, Randy wanted more branding opportunities. We were like 70% tech is what fueled us. That's what people bought from us. So this was a great way for him to actually like double down on brand and just focusing on building stories and solving bigger problems for companies from a brand perspective. Right. So for those of us who don't really even understand the whole, your company in general, when you're talking about technology versus branding, can you give us an example of what you're saying the differences are here? Sure. When I speak to technology, I say software engineering. So like the mobile apps, the web applications, websites, that was what fueled us at Devise. A lot of our work would be like building logos, identities, giving companies a fresh look in terms of like, this is sort of like their voice, their tone, what do their companies really stand for and what's their purpose. And so we did a lot of that work, you know, helping companies define like who they are and what they stand for. Okay. Yeah. So those are kind of total opposite, even though that you did both at Devise, you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Was it hard to tell people to like, you do this and you do that? It wasn't hard. A lot of people liked it. It was a lot of startups because a lot of startups need brand and they need technology. So the fusion actually worked really well for small to mid-sized businesses. But then we had a lot of clients that just needed software engineering. And we had more engineers than we had creative people. And it was people, what people bought. And brand is a different pitch. It's just hard in the commoditized market that you see, like, if you talk about brand, you're going to have different definitions from five different people. But you're also going to have different five different deliverables from five different creators and the way that they think a brand needs to be defined or done and five different price points. And so brand is just a different psyche than a piece of technology when you talk about a sales cycle or the way that it helps a company. So it was completely two different product lines. Yeah, I think I understand and most people might understand like a little bit of the difference, but I guess I didn't understand that it's almost like two different companies again that are in one at Devise if you're doing that because yeah, I've never heard of oh, a branding agency, if you will, or whatever, and then the software agency too, but I could see how it worked well for you where you're saying these small companies came in. Can you give us an example of, let's say I'm a new company, a new business, I need quote unquote branding, I come to you, what do you pitch me on and like how much would I pay? 
Totally. Yeah. So for example, one of our clients is Rich Uncles. And this is one of our bigger successes, I believe. They came to us very vanilla in the sense that they're a startup, new idea. And they're like, look, we're going to create a real estate investment platform where accredited and unaccredited investors are going to come to this website and invest as low as $500 into our real estate portfolio and own a lot of equity in that portfolio and see dividends from it. They're one of the first movers in the market. And when they came to us, like I said, they're very vanilla. So we pitched them on like, okay, to do this, we need to brand you from a understanding your messaging, your tone, how should people perceive you and how should this be represented online? And then we would say, okay, to build the software, let's go through the level of exercises to identify like what would be your minimal viable product. When we talk about the minimal viable product, we're talking about like the minimal features that impact sales to say, this is what we need to get the ball rolling. So we would pitch them. We'll go through a level of discovery, a level of sessions. And usually that would be 10 to 15,000 to go through those workshops. And out will come like a sort of proposal or a plan. And pretty much it will go like, this is what we believe you need in branding. And that could be like 20, 30,000. This is what you're going to need for software development. We believe this to be like 80 to 120,000. And that was perfect because this company needed that. And it worked really well that we were going to build the digital product, right? How people invest and log into the Chase Bank and make the investments. But like, it's very much that user experience is very much a part of what the brand is. So they are kind of tied and tied when you're talking about a company that's just vanilla. It's just like, this is what I want to do. And I need this whole experience to be delivered online. So when they came, had they not even been a business yet? They were, but not in the digital transformation piece. So they were just kind of like taking investments from a couple of people and their buddies and getting it going. And that's how they have like the offline MVP or minimal viable product, if you were to say, wow, this is actually a business that could be done online. So they did have a product. They did like 150,000 their first year in investments. But once we got involved and we built the tech, we started doing a million a month. And then we started doing a million a day for a short period of time. So that business scaled real quickly. Yeah, because I mean, I'm on their actual website and looking at it. And based on everything you just said, and anyone listening, if they're coming to you and they really don't have any of the tech or any of the quote unquote branding, it seems like you kind of created their whole company. Exactly. Because sort of like that was sort of our sweet spot was small to mid-sized businesses, fresh to startups. And that's where we were like, look, we are a brand focused engineering studio. And that was our value proposition. Right. So, I mean, I could easily see like, let's just say my dad or something wanted to come up with something, somebody who doesn't know a lot about technology or think they can figure it out, that they're a small business. If they came to you, that would seem like that would be the perfect kind of client for you versus if it's a younger person, maybe they're trying, oh, it depends, obviously, but I feel like they might be more apt to trying to create their own platform and use different software to put it together and make their own logos and stuff. So, I mean, does that sound about right as far as your perfect clients and the type of clients that you had coming in? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. So we were looking for this, the new entrepreneur or the seasoned entrepreneur, like entering their new company. And then we would sort of that one-stop shop to build the product and the brand for them. And that was a perfect client. And the reason why that's a perfect client to elaborate a little bit further is that it touched every department. So like my engineers were then working with my creative team, we're working with the branding specialists. And it was just that level of synergy when you get everyone working on a project, it's exciting to see. And so you're saying... Let's just say total when you added up earlier for this company, Rich Uncles, if it was like 50K total. So would they pay you right away? Can you just tell us how that payment method will work for you and how you actually end up getting the money? Our terms are pretty simple. So we would take some upfront just to reserve the job and the time. And then certain milestones were in place that would say, okay, once this is accomplished, 
then, you know, we would release these payments over a trailing of like, let's just say we, the estimation of the total project was like three or four months. So we weren't too aggressive to say like, you know, more payments up front or anything like that. Like we'll go, look, we can split up as in 20% payments or 10% payments. We don't mind. We're going to get the work done. And as long as you're happy and you're satisfied, you'll be keep writing the checks. So you told us about a good story in your company when you got started or at least a few years into Devise. Can you give us a horror story? <laughs> yeah, sure. I do. I won't say any names, but... Yeah, you can leave out the name, but just walk us through the scenarios on what happened. And it's always great to hear about the good things. And again, people can kind of Google what you're talking about, Rich Uncles, because I can see now. I think once you see what you can put together versus just talking about it, it definitely helps. But then also hearing some of the negative things that can happen and for us to watch out for. Yeah, it wasn't often, but we did have one in five years that really stood out. And it was sort of like one of those stores that you just couldn't get rid of. We were building an Android application and, you know, we estimated, we looked at it and we kind of just like said, oh, like the scope is pretty simple. We kind of understand and we built Android applications beforehand, but the moment we signed the contract, we didn't do enough due diligence up front. And so when you're kind of engaging into a project, you kind of want to understand like, look, like you're taking on a level of liability and fiduciary responsibility to the customer to service them well. And that was like, we always service our customers well. Like that was the most important to us. And so we took on this project and we got it and their code is just sloppy all over the place and so you know like okay let's clean it up here and there and then you start adding new features and it keeps breaking into other places and this process repeated itself the project should only been like two months but eventually repeated itself like five or six months but even then it wasn't done and the client was super unhappy and we thought we were kind of doing them a favor by trying to clean up a couple of things but we could not just win and it was just a really poorly written code base as much as we would bring that up, like, okay, let's try to make them like a little bit more and we can make them happy, but it just never got that finish line. Eventually, it actually lasted a year and three months. And it was a long time until finally we resolved it and we pretty much rewrote the whole thing from scratch. And we were being a little bit too nice. And that was a common trend of me, be just being too nice and wanting our customers to always be happy and know that we're on their side of the table and not just a hired vendor. But I think that one we lost a lot of money on. It really took advantage of us, in my opinion. And I think I just had this lens of just customer satisfaction that I could just not take off. And that was a big horror project for my team. The engineer just got extremely discouraged throughout the whole process too. My poor, my Pevin was, uh, he pulled through, but it was just hard for him to go through that. Here's something a lot of listeners would be interested in. Orgain's grant for greater good. Orgain has given away $150,000 in grant money. So if you're a startup business working in nutrition or promoting a healthy lifestyle, then listen up. If you're like me, you know how challenging it is to start your own business. So having the right support and more money to work with can only help. That's where Orgain comes in. The Orgain is a brand that makes convenient and clean nutrition products. It was founded by Dr. Andrew Abraham, who has a great story. Basically, he developed an original nutritional shake during his fight to beat cancer in teens to help nourish himself. Andrew realized he wanted to share his recipe with the world, so he quit his job as a doctor and founded Orgain. Andrew knows from firsthand experience that people are changing the world one idea at a time, but oftentimes these ideas don't have the financial support to get off the ground, and now he wants to pay it forward. Orgain will choose three deserving startups and grant them $50,000 each to help take their businesses to the next level. So to apply for the program, your startup needs to be two years or older and in the business of promoting healthy, vibrant lives, either through nutrition, active lifestyles, or mindfulness. So the application period ends March 20th. So if you think you're a good fit, 
please visit orgain.com forward slash grants today to learn more. Let's talk about finding freelance talent for your business or project. Finding the right freelancer can be time consuming, frustrating, and expensive. Where do you go to find that talent? How much will it cost? How can you be certain they'll even deliver? Thanks to Fiverr, finding the right freelancer doesn't have to be a struggle. I've used Fiverr before, and one of the best things about it is how quick turnaround is to actually get a project done. And Fiverr's marketplace helps you get more done with less. See, Fiverr connects businesses with freelancers who offer hundreds of digital services, including graphic design, copywriting, web programming, film editing, and more. Find out what you're looking for instantly. Search by service, deadline, price, reviews, and more. You'll know exactly what you're paying for up front. No negotiation needed. And it's 24-7 customer service. Take five and check out fiverr.com and you'll receive 10% off your first order by using my code millionaire. It's so easy. Don't waste any time and get your service done by going to fiverr. That's F-I-V-E-R-R.com and use code millionaire to get 10% off your first order. Fiverr, it starts here. Right. Yeah. Cause if it sounds like it's content negativity, when you're trying to do something, like I try to be cognizant of that, like any of my employees that work for me, I mean, they're virtual assistants. I'm not going to go there and try to be negative, negative, negative. Like you need to do this. It's an easy, like tipping balance. You have to give some positive reinforcement, but if you have a client who's just coming there and probably always telling you what you did wrong, that gets strange. I mean, me as a person too, if someone just kept doing that to me, I'm just going to be like, forget this, you know, but I imagine that's what's happening to your employee there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he had empathy and he understood, but at the same time, it was tough. It was definitely tough. And at certain points, he was just like, I'm really over this project. And so I kept having to massage it over. And I take a lot of blame on me. I should have really stood a little bit stronger and be like, you know, we can't stand for this anymore. And I think I just started off off the line going, let's just fix these things and make them feel good because we'll have a new account here and there'll be a good relationship. But that just never fruition. So what did you learn from that for maybe future clients? Because again, it's hard to tell someone's personality from when you send out a bid and they accept it. It sounded like maybe you would have put more time into making like a higher bid, but it's personalities are hard to judge, even if you only met them a couple of times first. So yeah, tell us just what you learned from that so we can learn from that as well. Yeah, that's a good question. I think I would look back and I would, we skipped the due diligence on this. And I think that was a big issue. Like we should have really taken consideration the risk factor. There's a level of risk that you're taking on to build something. Well, it doesn't exist before and you got to make sure you see that to completion. So I think due diligence up front and reading the personality would have been extremely important because they were a bit aggressive. And I think one of our models was just like, look, we don't work with assholes. So a lot of people we would deny at the door. But, you know, I think for some reason we didn't see that and I didn't see that. So how do you figure that out at the door now versus maybe before? Is there an easy way for you to kind of figure that out? Yeah, there's a couple of different ways. I think once you're in the business for a couple of years, it's all about reps and you start understanding the different terrain and personalities. You can just see the way that people communicate. A lot of times as a small business owner, I always say like, look, the person that dangles like the carrot in front of me, like I just don't work with them. Because it speaks to their like fundamental nature of who they are. So those are some things that I've learned as key takeaways, knowing like, I just don't want to work with that person. And that's okay. You don't have to work with everybody. It's hard as a business owner because business on the table is future growth and future opportunity. But having that internal discipline, I think really kind of makes who you are and instills trust and confidence with your team. Like me personally, sometimes I can tell through like a tone of an email, even if I ask someone to come on the podcast and if they keep asking question after question, I'm like, no, I'm not dealing with this. 
I gave you everything. And if you're not going to read the instructions on what we've done in the early on, then that's an issue. Do you think you can tell through tons of emails? I mean, it sounds like you met some of these people in person. So that makes it much easier. I would think at least initially, even though again, people can put on fronts, but was there anything else? I think in person was pretty much 90% of our business. Okay. Well then, yeah, that helps a lot. I'm just an optimistic person. <laughs> I'm just like, ah, oh, are they really a bad person? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was funny seeing the going back to like how the yin yang between Randy. So sometimes we'd have like first intro meeting and they would walk out and I'll be like, man, that guy's so rad. And then Randy's like, no way. And I'm like, oh, and then we have a conversation about it. I'm like, all right, I see you. So always something I can better on. So I don't know if we should kind of go to the end of your journey here at Devise and kind of leave it off there as far as what else you learned during this time. You kind of walked us through like a great client story and then obviously kind of more negative downturn there. But what else, I guess, in closing, do you think you've learned from growing your business and selling it to another bigger company? Yeah, I mean, selling to a bigger company was a dream come true. And it wasn't fun in the way that there's a lot of due diligence that needs to be done. It took 10 months, 11 months to close the deal. So going through that process, it was stressful, but making it happen was a dream come true. But I think the lesson I learned as well is kind of what we talked about in the beginning of the call was I never thought I would sell my business. So there is an array of different things that I never thought to think of that now I know like when I enter my next business, I would be more mindful of because the exit will happen eventually. Whether it's for me or let's say it's for my kids, but the business will have that. So I think that's important to recognize that I'm building this business as a separate entity and willing to sell. And devise, it wasn't bred from that perspective. So I think the valuations could have always gone up and would have done things a little bit differently. Yeah, so tell us those things if you don't mind. So one thing is, if anyone is thinking about building an agency, it's a volatile business. So the multiplier on your EBITDA line is going to be a lot less than if I had like a manufacturing house or something with a piece of intellectual property. So like one thing I learned is we don't build agencies for liquidity. It's amazing that I had a liquidity event from it. A lot of agency owners don't have it just because they want to buy the clients, the operators, or it's just they want to acquire the staff. But it's a hard thing to sell an agency. So that's one thing is the multiplier on your valuation in the agency world is a lot less. Other things I would have done is I always said to my clients, I'm like, one of the reasons of why you would choose this is we would never put you on monthly retainers. So I had minimal monthly retainers just for a couple clients that have been with me for years. However, if I had more monthly retainers, since we were acquiring assets contracts, that would have helped with my multiplier as well. So in retrospect, I would have had more retainers, more defined income. I think that would have been smarter to do. Those are a couple of takeaways. That makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of people understand like, okay, if I can actually see reincurring revenue. So how would you make that different? Let's just say you had to charge a client $20,000 and it was like, I don't know, a three month contract, then you're done. I mean, I don't know if you would take it out of your actual contract and try to keep them on retainer, like how much you would even charge and why they would want to pay. Cause you got to have some value as to why they need you too, right? Yeah. So I think I would have been more creative in the way that we package our offering, maybe a better tail end in terms of how we maintain or add them, but like signing up clients to say, yeah, maybe we would subsidize like that. Usually it's a 20,000 build, but now we're doing it for 10, but we're going to put this retainer on monthly. And this is the extra added value we're bringing to you monthly or quarterly. I think are great ideas on how to sort of keep the client engaged and involved in the ecosystem, which would have helped in terms of the recurring revenue and the actual valuation. I know you've thought hard about this, right? Yeah, I've thought about different ways about, you know, how we could have done it. And I would have done things a little bit differently if I was looking at it like this is a business. 
Right. And this is how you're going to look at your next business, right? Yeah, exactly. Again, I know you think about this a lot. How would you have done it or whatever? I guess part of what I'm thinking, if I was in your position, if I wanted to keep them on quote unquote retainer, let's say I'm building them an app. I don't know if we're coming out with newer Android versions or iOS. Maybe that's a reason they should stay on retainer. Or is there other things that you could like brainstorm? Because again, there might be some creatives who are thinking right now, they're like, hey, you know, I would like to probably do more retainers, but I don't know how to kind of sell it to them. So any other suggestions on, or did you even think that was a good idea by me saying that? Yeah, no, it is a good idea. It's just tough because you got to know your client too. And so a lot of times when you're working with a fresh startup, that's like the entity was born this year and they have no tax returns last year, they may fail in the next year or two. And that's just factual. And so creating like the operating expense monthly is hard for them to justify out of the gate. And so a lot of our startup clients, it was hard. A lot of our long-term clients, I once they hit the one or two years of being a business and they've been, they know us for three, four years, we had them on retainers and we kind of gave them those sort of pitches about like maybe quarterly updates and we were delivering different metrics and data analytics to make sure that they were empowered with knowledge to understand how their application or website is kind of working for them. So we started doing that, but I think I just would have identified a different maybe target. I would maybe only focus on the mid-market, you know what I mean? Or enterprise level, because I know that I can get sort of recurring revenue and that's going to create value for the entity or for the business itself. So I think there's a lot of ways to do it. Now for a creative person, how are you going to do it? I think you just have to identify like what are the needs of the customer and how you can identify different value. Maybe it's a totally different product line. Just because we're doing, we developed the app first doesn't mean that we have to be maintaining the app later on in terms of monthly. It could be then creating promotions for the app. So now we're diving into social media or like other digital services or marketing services. So just food for thought. Maybe it's a completely different product line that you're selling to them afterwards. I think what you said with the analytics, that makes sense. And you're saying, obviously, if you can go with the bigger companies, they've got a bigger budget and they don't care about those monthly expenses versus a small startup. That's all they care about. You obviously know because you were a small business at one point in time, too. Like you worry about every dime. So, again, it's just making sure that it makes sense and that you can sell it on them. And because they're not just going to give you free money every month, you've got to come up with some value prop, like you're saying. And I think maybe the analytics, the updates, I don't know if there's anything else, but I guess you just have to do some brainstorming and figure out as a business owner. How could I get reoccurring revenue versus it all up front, like you're saying? Right. Maybe it's even a percentage that like you give a discount. I don't know if you'd have to go up there and fix them and sell them on something, but by being a monthly quote unquote member or whatever, they get a percentage discount of what it would normally be to do it. Or I don't know if like exactly how it would work because I've never been part of an agency like yours, but at least brainstorm those type of things, it sounds like. Yeah, there's a lot of creative ways to do it. And I think there's one model that I was always impressed with. My buddy, he runs an IT company. And so he's like, all right, I'm going to come in into a company. And he actually did this like rich uncles, but like he'll come in like, you guys have 50 employees. I'm going to set up your IT for you, help you with the security and all that type of stuff. And usually that build out costs 200,000 because they need all new hardware or something like that, a lot of labor. But he's like, you're not going to pay that. You're only going to pay 20 grand today. And then you're going to pay 10 grand for the next three years. This is for easy numbers or whatever. And his mindset is, we're going to maintain it. And it's one of the things, if something goes wrong, you call me, we'll support it and we'll maintain it. But if you don't call me and you're still paying that monthly, it just means I did a, that good of a job up front. So it's a good thing. I liked his business model because he was getting these sort of long-term contracts. He was upfronting a lot of the bill, but you know, he was seeing it in terms of like how his profit margin would increase at you know, year two, year three, year four. And so I was like, oh, that would be an interesting model to sort of adopt into the agency space. But I already sold the business. So. <laughs> Yeah. Just maybe even Googling or again, brainstorming like your friend did, like 
different business models that you can get that reoccurring revenue because more reoccurring revenue, the higher you'll be able to eventually sell your company for. Yeah, I think that's a huge takeaway. So that's one thing I would say, look at it definitely as, as a business and any sort of yearly, monthly, quarterly revenue is going to be huge for the business. Well, thank you for joining us, Dollop. And I guess if you had any last words of wisdom for anyone starting a business or early on in a business, what would that be? Absolutely. No, thanks for having me. This is great. I think we dove in a lot and I hope that there was some nuggets for everyone to take away some key points. Just be scrappy. I think as a business, you don't need everything to look perfect, work perfect. And I think people have this sort of mindset of just like overnight, it needs to be a success. Know who you are, know where you are, be aware that you're in the beginning stages and be scrappy with the way that you conduct business and to move it forward. You have to be a hustler at the end of the day. And I think that helped me kind of like grow in terms of the office, the way of hiring. I think it was super important. Well, thank you for joining us. And again, if anyone want to actually say thank you for doing the interview, is there a best way for them to reach you and say thank you? Totally. I mean, you can search my name, Dalip Jaggi on, uh, I think LinkedIn's a great platform. Or if you want to email me, just email me at dalip.jaggi at vincent.com. And I'm sure like the name and stuff like that would be on the audio cast. Yeah, we'll put it on the show notes and everything. We always put that contact info. For everybody, if you scroll down to your episode notes, we have a link that takes you to our website and has all your contact info. So, and I'll have your email there too. Be sure to check out our website so you can actually say thank you and send an email to Dali for doing the interview. Thanks again for joining us, man. Thank you so much. You have a great day. This is great. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the end here. So this is a basically a quick preview of a coaching call, my first coaching call with Eric Gilbert Williams where again, we're going to talk about the podcast and the financials. So if you want the rest of it, it's actually already available for all Patreon members. So just check your Patreon feed and you have access to the rest of this interview. So hope you enjoy this quick preview of my first coaching call with Eric. What I was thinking, you remember I told you before, I could send this out as a Patreon special and so people get an example of how you could help them too. So hopefully it helps them at that end as well. Sure. Yeah. I think we're recording right now. So I think we're live and happening. Uh, Yeah. It's just so 8 p.m. your time. It is 8 p.m. my time. Luckily, I don't have kids or anything, so I can kind of do a similar schedule if I want to. Yeah. Basically, my only baby is the podcast, really. Yeah. And nothing's more exciting than taking a baby that you created, like your podcast, and turning it into a profitable machine that can support you for a long time. What a good lead intro here, huh? (laughs) Wasn't bad, eh? (laughs) Yeah, there you go. I guess with that said, do you want to jump into what you would normally, because we did a quick pre-interview call just so everyone's on the same line. They understand, and this is our first kind of real call. And I guess you're trying to help me, and this is what you do with other businesses. Do you want to just run down what you normally do on this first call? So I guess people can get an example, and then hopefully it can help me specifically try to make this more profitable for me so I can keep doing it. For sure. The first call, first, let me, let me just say that in the typical business coaching world and business entrepreneurship or advising world, um, there's a lot of people out there that have systems and cookie cutter processes and sort of one size fits all sort of like going to school and go through my program. And I'm really just not that kind of person. And I'm not going to speak uh, positively or negatively about how other people roll. I just do it a little different. So this first call and every call starts and finishes the exact same way. You tell me what's going on. Tell me what the priorities are. What the hell's happening right now that we need to focus on? And we're going to tackle that problem as if we were partners and as if this company was my own as well and with some actionable results that can be monitored and measured between now and the time of our next call. And between now and the time of our next call, uh, we'll keep in touch through direct message. And if we need to have another quick little 15-minute chat at some point, then we do that too. 
So really, let's just dive right in, figure out what's happening and together some actionable steps. Yeah, no, that sounds perfect because I agree with you. I've never really had a coach. I've done a couple of masterminds and whatnot. And I mean, I've had someone that I paid to try to help me about a year ago with the podcast. And I'm not sure it was everything that I was hoping for because right. I guess I found out at the end of the day, it's trying to figure out if someone's helping you, whether they're a coach or like a consultant that you're actually paying to fix it. But you're going to try to help me figure out what I need to do. And then whoever's coaching you, it's on the person that you're coaching to actually get the job done versus someone actually doing the work for you where you pay a lot more. And you're just doing this because you want to help other entrepreneurs make their stuff more profitable and just my podcast because making a podcast is very difficult to make profitable. So the way I make money right now is really 95% of it's through sponsorships and like 5% through Patreon. And those are kind of right. really my own two streams right now. So my idea is just trying to, and I'm, if you ask me, you can just ask me whatever questions you want and I can tell you where I am financially with it. And hopefully, you know, I try to be very reasonable and set up expectations that I hate projecting things out in a best case scenario. I almost try to work at, look at worst case scenario. So right. really, I guess trying to either make money doing this different ways to try to help people. And it's really my main thing. I don't care if it's different type of revenue streams or any way that you can give me some ideas on how to make it more profitable overall. Yeah. Well, most people are, are why? Well, let me rephrase this. Ideas are great. Actionable items and, and finishing something is more important though. How many great ideas come up every day that don't actually go anywhere? So if you want access to it and other exclusive interviews and you're not a Patreon member, then go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Yolo!